welcome today to Life Church. I'm Aaron Cole, the senior pastor. We're delighted to have you with us today. And if you have your Bibles, if you would turn with me to uh, Psalm chapter 51. Psalm chapter 51, I'm going to get there in just a minute. Uh, we're in our series uh, called Shoulda, Coulda, Woulda. And we're talking today about the trap of sin. And I just kind of want to get right into this message today because uh, I think we all live and we swim in these waters from time to time. Uh, sometimes we escape them, sometimes we seem swallowed up by them. But, uh, but we all deal with the shoulda, coulda, wouldas in life. We all deal with it. We all deal with these regrets. I should have done this. I wish I would have done this. I could have done this. And, but there's varying degrees and levels of shoulda, coulda, wouldas. Like, Take, for instance, there's a difference between heartburn in the middle of the night, I should have passed on the ribs, right, and you have a couple of Tums and get up the next day, to the kind of shoulda, coulda, woulda that comes with a consumer debt. When you, when you say, man, I wish I would have saved my money, paid cash, because now I'm drowning in debt, to the I wish I would have listened to God and listened to his word, because I found myself in the middle of an affair, and now I've lost my family, I'm losing my kids, I'm losing my life, I, I, I'm losing everything. You see, the, the first and the second, heartburn and consumer debt, those are not sins. They're just stupid, <laughs> right? They're just things that we kind of go at the end of the day, hey, I, I, I wish I would have done this different, I wish I would have made a, a better choice here, or better choice there. But the third thing, it's sin. And sin is powerful, Sin is serious. And, and when you're talking about sin being serious, there's a path to sin. The book of James, you don't have to turn there, but it's going to be on the screen because I want you to see this. The book of James, chapter 1, verse 14 and 15 says this. But each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. Then after the desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. There's a process here. It begins with temptation and desire. That's us. And if we don't harness and we don't get those temptations and desires of our life, and we don't get those under control, that leads to sin. And when sin is full grown, it will kill us. Desire, sin, death. You know, it's, it's okay to be tempted by chocolate cake. All right, let's just give this example. It's okay to be tempted by chocolate cake. But when you begin to partake of it, it's, it's a sin. It's not a sin to be tempted. It's not a sin to, to all of a sudden, where did that evil desire come from? Where did that temptation come from? Where did that lust in my life come from? But when I partake of it, when I cross the line and I begin to partake of the sin, excuse me, I partake of the desire and the temptation, then it becomes sin. And here's the thing that we think. We think we can just live in our sin and it's okay. We think we can live in our sin and nothing will happen. We think that we can just go along and live in our sin and everything's going to be okay. But the Bible says no, that when sin is full grown, which means there's a process of time from the time that I sin until the time that death shows up. What death of what? Death of me? Death of my job, death of my reputation, death of my family, death of everything that I've worked for, death of my physical body, whatever it may be that I'm dealing with. See, you've got to beware of unchecked desires because unchecked desires turn into temptation and temptation turns into sin and sin leads to death. Not only anybody thinking I'm hating on them today, I don't anybody thinking that I'm standing up here preaching to you today and I'm condescending. Because here, we all, listen, I said this at the beginning. We all find ourselves from time to time swimming in these waters. 
Where we become tempted by something, we allow our desires to go away, we, and, then we, and then we find ourselves in sin. And it may not be a gross immoral sin that will cost you everything, but it's something that begins to eat away bit by bit at your soul. Or it's something that keeps you from what God wants you to do. Or it can be something that's huge, that the, that the foundations of your life are shook, and, and everything in your life comes tumbling down. But sin is still sin, and sin will still bring forth death. That's what James says. So what do you do if you find yourself in sin? Even as a Christ follower, maybe you've been serving God for some time, and, and you've just gone kind of lackadaisical with your relationship with Christ. Maybe, maybe you're a high school student or a middle school student, and it's been several months since you've been at camp. And at camp, you kind of push away from the world and kind of get close to God. And youth convention's not here yet, which I'd encourage you to go, because some of you, that's the two times of the year that you get saved. And, 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 or, or maybe you've just been a long time. You're just kind of coming back from the summer, and you've close the cottage up north, or whatever your excuses or your reasons have been, and you find yourself back at church. And as you're sitting here today, you go, wow. There's this gnawing feeling. Is it hot in this room, or is it just me? Is, it, is that heart burned? I need another tums. No, that's the Holy Spirit. It's not indigestion. It's not the temperature in the room. It's Jesus knocking on the door of your heart. And maybe that's where you are today. I just want to talk about how do we deal with this trap of sin? How do we not just avoid it, but how do we get out of it? The Bible speaks about this in, in various ways, but it talked to us about this in the lives of people. Again, I said this last weekend that when you're dealing with, with, with the Bible, many people think that it's just a collection of stories of people that are perfect. But the reality is it's, it's not. The reality is, is that it's, it's the collection of the lives of people who are imperfect and who have made some gross errors and mistakes. And when we talk about someone who was red-hot passionate for God in their youth, and they served God, and then they began to kind of come into middle age, and they cool their faith down, and they, they began to become lackadaisical, and they allow their own desires to become temptations. And those temptations lead them to sin, and that sin leads them to death. The classic example of that is David. David. I mean, David started out as being this uh, man after God's own heart, the Bible said. I mean, the Bible says that of no one else in Scripture. I mean, would that not be cool for God to say that of you, that you are a man after God's own heart? You are a woman after God's own heart. I mean, I mean, if God said that about me, that would be like, that would be in every picture. That would be in every biograph biographical sketch. I I'd have it even on the screen today, the whole time, man after God's own heart, right at the very bottom of the screen. Because, I mean, that would be like stinking cool. And the Bible says this of David. And the Bible gives us that David was used of God and protected by God. And God blessed David. He went from the obscurity of this youngest son of this house of Jesse, of these sheep herders that are just kind of on the backside of the desert to become the king of Israel. God's people. And God develops him. And God uses him. And wealth and knowledge and access and a kingdom that was unparalleled. And at the very height and the pinnacle, David loses it. At the very height and pinnacle, he allows what James talks about, sin that becomes temptation that becomes desire that becomes sin, sin that turns into death. You don't have to turn there, but I just want to walk you through as we're getting to, I'm going to Psalm 51, just hold on, I'll be there in just a minute. But 2 Samuel chapter 11 tells us in verse 1 that in the springtime when the kings went off to war, David stayed home. 
It tells us that David was supposed to be someplace else, that David's responsibilities meant he should have been somewhere else, that, that David, if he was following the disciplined life that he should have been following as a follower of God, he would have been off to war with the nation of Israel. But instead, he allowed his own desires to turn, to turn into temptation. And the Bible says in chapter 11 that while he's home, he sees a married woman, Bathsheba. And David had many, many wives. And that's another message and another story for another day. But David said, I want her. Why? Because his temptation, his desires had gone away. And David is his king and he can have whatever he wants. And nobody challenges David because he's the king of the nation of Israel. He's, he's, he's a guy that slew Goliath. He's, he's a man after God's own heart. So David has Bathsheba come to his residence, to the palace. He has sexual relations with her, and those sexual relationships result in a child. So David thinks, what am I going to do? How am I going to fix this? Because this could ruin me. This now has turned from temptation and desire into sin. And if this sin comes out, I could lose everything. So he does what most of us do. He tries to cover his son up. And he sends message to Joab, who was his commander-in-chief on the front lines, where David should have been. But he asked Joab, I want you to send back Uriah, the Hittite, and I want you to bring him back from war. And he comes in, and he guises it. He completely lies to Joab, and he guises it under the, under the auspice of, I just want to have this conversation. I just want to get a report. And so he brings Uriah, the Hittite, back, and he sends Uriah home that evening, hoping that Uriah will spend the night with his wife, Bathsheba, and that they will, two, you know, one plus one will equal two, and that they will think, well, that's when she conceived of the child. And again, this is, this is before maternity tests and, and, and DNA testing and all of that kind of pregnancy checks that you can get from Walgreens didn't have that at that time. And it's before all of that. And so David asked him to do that. And David wakes up the next morning expecting for Uriah to have been at home. Instead, he's sleeping on his doorstep of the palace. And he asked Uriah, Uriah, why are you here? And Uriah, I love what he says. He says, oh, king, how can I sleep in my own bed and be with my wife when the, nations of, when the nation of Israel is at war? He's Really, it's the Holy Spirit kind of saying, David, that's where you're supposed to be. And if you had the heart of Uriah, you wouldn't be in this situation. Because every time, listen, every time we find ourselves in sin, there are always windows of opportunity that God gives us to get out. There's always moments of grace. There's always doorways in which God opens up. And if we'll take those doorways, God will have grace and mercy upon us. I want you to hear what I just said. God's not trying to expose you or to embarrass you. Through the vehicle and the person of the Holy Spirit, he wants to convict us so that we live a life of righteousness. And even when we fail, God wants to have grace and mercy. And he gives us grace and mercy because before it hits the front page of the paper. There's been multiple times in the life of a Christ follower where there's been ways of escape and places for God to show his grace and mercy. But we, in our own arrogance and our own pride, give God the Heisman. And that's exactly what David does. And he sends Uriah back to the next night. And Uriah does the same thing. He does not go home. He sleeps at the doorstep of the palace. So at that point, David sends Uriah back to the front lines. And chapter 11 tells all of this. He sends him back to the front lines and he gives orders to Joab that, that in the heat of the battle, I want you to pull back and Uriah will be killed. Joab doesn't understand what's going on. He's just following the king's orders. Because again, David was a man after God's own heart. 
So David, so, so Joab does that, Uriah is killed, and, and according to the law, David then could take Bathsheba as his wife, and so David brings it, Bathsheba as his wife, and he goes, okay, well, she's pregnant, but nobody knows, again, this is before maternity tests and DNA tests, and nobody can prove anything, and he thinks he's covered it up. The problem is that he's committed so many sins against God that it's not even funny. Adultery, coveting, stealing, murder, lying, he's done all of these things. But he thinks he's okay, and he thinks he's got it all taken care of, because that's what happens. That's what sin does to us. Sin lies to us. Sin tells us it's okay. Sin tells us nobody will find out. Sin says, just just cool your jets. Everything's okay. And in chapter 12, all of this has happened. David thinks he's okay, and he's going along with the kingdom. And in walks in Nathan. Nathan's a prophet of God. He's a man of God. And this would have been a common practice because what would have happened is, is that David, was, because he was a man after God's own heart, he's this great leader, he would have been pursued. And, and they would have come to him for wisdom and for guidance and for direction. And being the king, there would be certain things that he would do and see. And so, so this wasn't an uncommon practice. And so David, of course, invites Nathan right on in, sit down, let's have coffee, tell me what's going on. And Nathan begins to tell him of a situation, which had been pretty much common practice. And he says, he says King, I, I need to, to, to talk to you. There, there, there are two men. One is very poor and one is very rich. And the one who's poor has one lamb. And that lamb is like a personal pet. I mean, this lamb, they have nursed the lamb from, from, from birth. They've, they, they've, they've, they, they, they groom the lamb. The, the lamb sleeps. In, and it's, it's got a name. Uh, the kids play. I mean, it's a family pet. And then there's a rich man in the kingdom. And, and he has many, many, many lambs. Numerous. So numerous to count. And the rich man has a traveling friend that comes through. And when the traveling friend comes through, he wants dinner. And so the rich man, instead of taking one of his many lambs, goes to the poor man and goes in and steals and takes the poor man's only lamb, the family pet. And while the, the, the kids are crying and, and, and the poor man, is, he, he's helpless, the, the rich man takes it and he has the lamb killed and he feeds it to his traveling friend. And the Bible says in verse 5 of chapter 12 uh, of 2 Samuel that David's anger burns within him. And David said, for as long as the Lord lives, this man must die. And then... Nathan looks at David in verse 7 and says, You are that man. Here's what you've done. And he begins to tell David of all the sin, of all the cover-up, of the temptation and the desire that led to sin with Bathsheba, that led to the death and the sin of Uriah, that led to the conception of this child. And Nathan says to David, And because of your sin, this child will die. It's in that moment that David drops to his knees and he cries out to God. And Psalm 51 records the exact prayer that David prayed. So if you have it, Psalm 51. It's David's prayer. It's David's response. Verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Notice, it wasn't just one thing he did wrong. It was many things. Wash away all of my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, for my sin is always before me. And against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. 
So when you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in the secret place. So now cleanse me with hyssop that I'll be made clean. Wash me that I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you've crushed rejoice. Verse 9, hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquity. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit or a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me, but restore to me the joy of your salvation. And grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Now again, this isn't exhaustive, but this prayer that David prays gives us basically kind of a pathway to if you find yourself in sin, especially if you've been following God and you know the things of God, and you've allowed your, your desires to be turned into temptation, and temptation to be brought into sin. And the sin now is brought death, as it has with David. If you find yourself in that situation, if you go back to this passage and you understand what David is saying, and you kind of walk through it, it's a pathway to restoration. And that's really what I want to give you today. It's what do you do when you find yourself there? You're not the first person to ever sin. You're not the first person to find yourself there. David, a man after God's own heart, totally crashed and burned, totally had a shoulda, coulda, woulda moment. But God restores him. And this prayer gives us this pathway back. The first thing that David does is, is recognition. I am a sinner. It's complete recognition. I am a sinner. David doesn't argue. David doesn't fight. David doesn't plead his case. He just says, God, I'm a sinner. Verse 1 and verse 2, Lord, I've sinned. God, I'm wrong. God, I'm a sinner. Lord, I'm here. And, and that's the thing. When God catches you, when, when, when it comes to this point, and even today, you're sitting in this room and you feel like, oh, he is reading my mail. He is all up in my kitchen, rattling the pots and the pans. Hallelujah. Even in that moment, this, this, it's, it's, it's not a time for you to plead your case. There's not a time for you to, to, to absolve your sin. There's not a time for you to make light. It's in that moment, if you want to be restored, if you want to be made clean, if you want to be made whole, if you want to deal with the regret of the shoulda, coulda, woulda of the sin of your life, it's in that moment that you first recognize, I am a sinner. He calls out for mercy. He asks God to not just forgive, but forget to blot out his transgressions and to cleanse him. I'm telling you, if you can't do that, that sin that's in you will just continue to grow over you and encase you and harden your heart. A broken and a contrite spirit, the Bible says God will never turn away from. But we, if we're in sin, have to first confess, I am a sinner in need of a Savior. The second thing that David does is he takes responsibility. I was wrong. I was wrong. He didn't say the devil made me do it. This happened. I was wrong. If you look at the number of personal pronouns that he uses in verses 3, 4, 5, and 6, it's so numerous to count. Because at the, he's saying, look, I'm the one that did this, and I'm the one that was wrong, and I did this, and God, you didn't do this. You didn't make me. The devil didn't make me. This is me. This is me. This is me. Isn't that what James says? 
James doesn't blame sin and death on the devil. He blames it on us when we are enticed by our own desires, when we are tempted and led away by our own lust, when we allow that to happen in our lives. It's time that we take responsibility. I talk to a lot of people as a pastor, and it's hard for people to say, I was wrong. I made the mistake. Because everybody, we all want to see it from our own perspective. We all want to see it from our own reality. And if we're not careful... We don't take responsibility. And as long as we're pleading our case, and as long as we're saying, oh, it's not that bad, or everybody else does it, or I'm not as bad as so-and-so, God is sitting over at Starbucks drinking a grande skinny cinnamon dolce latte at 190 degrees and going, when you come to the point that you can admit that you're a sinner and need of a Savior, that you are wrong and that you need me, you call on me. Because whoever calls on me, I'll be there. But until you come to the end of yourself, walk in your own pride and arrogance and your blinded life. And the third thing David does is restoration. And restoration is a process, not an event. Restoration is a process, not an event. Let me say that again. Restoration is a process, not an event. The rest of these verses walk with us a journey of restoration. And I just want to take the few minutes that we have left in our message today. And I want to walk you through those. And if you're taking notes, these are great things to write down. Because he walks us through, here's how you become restored. Yes, you began with, I'm a sinner. Yes, you began with, with, I was wrong, and I take responsibility for my actions. God, forgive me. But how many of you know, when it blows up, when, when you crash through all of the barriers, when you find yourself in living in sin, being in sin, having lived in sin, even if you were a follower of Jesus Christ, yes, God's grace is sufficient. Yes, God is faithful. Yes, he's there. Yes, he's there at the very mention of his name. But there's a process. You didn't get there overnight, and you don't change overnight. So what's that process? Well, let's just walk through. First of all, it begins with a pure heart. It begins with a pure heart. It's asking God to forgive and to heal. Why does it begin with a pure heart? Why does he stay there? He says that in verse 10. Lord, create in me a pure heart. Why? Because the Bible says to guard the heart because out of it flows the issues of life. I'm telling you. It comes in through the eye. It registers with the mind. And it takes up residency in the heart. It comes in your eye. Registers in your mind. Takes up residency in your heart. In your eye. In your mind. In your heart. That's why you got to be so careful what you watch. Whether it's media, whether it's just entertainment, whether it's, it's, it's harmless. Because what you see, if you're not careful, will register in your mind. And it will click something in your mind. Lust, temptation, whatever it may be. It will kick it in your mind. And if you're not careful, you'll begin to put it in your heart and in your heart. Because all the issues of life, the Bible says, comes from the heart. So guard your heart above all else, the Bible says. Because out of it flows the issues of life. And when you're living life in sin, it's because you have let down your guard in your heart. And you've allowed sin to take up residency here. That's why David was there. That's why he wasn't where he was supposed to be, because his heart was no longer there. Oh, he was in the position, but his heart wasn't there. Oh, yeah, he, was still, have, he still had the mantra, man after God's own heart, yet he wasn't living it. And that's where you get alone with God. And after you've 
confess that you're a sinner and ask you after you've asked God to to basically to that, that you repent, you say you're wrong, then you look and you say, Lord, deal with my heart. Deal with my heart. The next step is spiritual renewal. Spiritual renewal. Verse 10, he goes on to say, and renew a right spirit, or renew a steadfast spirit in me. Spiritual renewal. How do you get spiritually renewed? By prayer and by the word. By prayer and by the word. By prayer and by the word. By spiritual disciplines. Jesus said some of these things only come about, but by prayer and fasting. By spiritual disciplines in our life. Because here's the reality. When you wake up and sit, living in Sin City, especially as a follower of Jesus Christ, it's because you have quit reading the word and it's because you've quit praying. Listen to me. Somebody needs to hear this. You're dealing with sin and temptation in your life and we all can deal with that. But you're dealing with it and you're dabbling with it. And, and if you go back and you look, it's been a long time since you were regularly in God's word and in prayer. Regularly in God's word and in prayer. Because I'm telling you, when you have a steady, consistent diet daily of spending time in prayer and spending time in God's Word, spending time in prayer, spending time in God's Word, talking to God and letting God talk to you, I'm telling you, it builds up your spiritual man, and there's a sense there. But when you quit doing that and you let that guard down, then what begins to happen is it breaks you down. And so in order to be built back up, in order to be restored, you have to allow for spiritual renewal. Again, it's a process. It's not an event. Galatians talks about this. It talks about the building up of the spiritual man. That there's a physical man, that we feed the physical man physical food, and the physical man grows. The same is true of a spiritual man. If we feed them the spiritual man spiritual food, he grows. What's spiritual food? Prayer and the Word. Prayer and reading the Bible. Prayer and daily devotions. And I invite you. At, at the Germantown campus, it's 7.14 a.m. every single day, seven days a week from now until we get into the new facility. We will have prayer in the sanctuary. You can just come and pray. Five minutes, ten minutes, fifteen minutes, an hour. You can say two hours if you want to. And every Sunday morning at the West Campus, West Campus at 7 a.m., 7.14 a.m. on Sunday mornings, right there, Pastor Danny Phillips, the campus pastor, is there, and we're praying right in the theater. Why? Because we want to make sure that God is working in our lives, and spiritual renewal only comes by, by prayer and the Word. Now then two things happen after this. The next thing is you begin to sense the presence of God. Again, these are all processive. You begin to sense the presence of God. And then secondly, you begin to be filled with the Spirit of God. Verse 11 talks about this. Don't take your presence from me, God, and, and let me feel your Spirit. See, when you begin to walk through this process and your heart begins to get right... You begin to become, your spirit begins to become renewed. Then all of a sudden, you begin to sense the presence of God in your life. Because what happens when you're living in sin? You don't sense it anymore. And then people make comments. I don't sense God's presence anymore. Well, maybe that's you. You can go to six different churches. <laughs> but if you're living with sin, if you've got a hard heart, if you've got issues, if you're jacked up, it doesn't matter where you go. It doesn't matter if you show up and have breakfast with the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. It's not going to feel anything. Why? Because at the end of the day, the issue is you. If John's got a problem with Sally, John's got a problem with Sarah, John's got a problem with Susie, John's got a problem. And the company that John keeps isn't going to change it. And, and so the reality is, is that you have to sit and go, and look at your own life. And, and, and so, but when you're coming back and you're trying to, to, to re get restored after there's 
After there's repentance and, and after there's admission of sin and guilt and after the heart begins to be restored and the spirit becomes renewed, then you begin to sense the presence of God. It doesn't happen overnight. And then you begin to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You begin to acknowledge the role of the Holy Spirit. You begin to hear the whisper of the Holy Spirit. And then the next thing that happens is joy fills your life. Verse 12. Verse 12, he says, Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Joy begins to fill your life again. You begin to laugh again. Life begins to feel normal again. Doesn't happen instantly. It's a process. And then lastly, verse 13 says, You're ready to serve. Now you're back. Now you're ready to move in that direction. This is the reason why, I want you to hear this. When someone's in spiritual leadership and they find themselves in gross sin and immorality, there's a process that has to go through. And it's not instantaneous. Uh, a, a pastor can't have an affair and then be back in the pulpit in three weeks. Why? Because he didn't get there in three weeks. She didn't get there in three weeks. And so what has to happen is that process has to happen of recognition that I'm a sinner responsibility, I'm wrong. And then the restoration has to, has, because that heart has to be restored again. Then that spirit has to be renewed again. And then there needs to be a sensing of God's presence just as a follower of Jesus Christ. And then there's got to be an infilling of God's spirit and an infusion of the Holy Ghost power again. Then they begin to feel joy again and life begins normal. And many times that takes months and it may even take a year, 18 months for that to happen. Two years. Because you didn't get there overnight, it's not going to change overnight. There's a process, and then you're ready to go back into service. Here's what I want to do today. I want to give you an opportunity today not to confess your sin to me, because I'm not God, but to confess it to him. And what I'm going to do at this time, the band's going to make their way. And as the band makes their way, and they're going to begin to play here in just a minute, I'm going to, to pray. And when I'm finished praying, the band's going to lead you in a couple of choruses, a couple of songs. And if you're like, man, I'm all right, man. Jesus and I, we're good. Or you're just, this doesn't mean anything to you, whatever. I don't know. You just want to sit there. That's totally fine. But uh, what they're going to do, they're going to come back, and they're going to begin to play and sing. And as they do... If the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart that you need to get some things right, maybe it's just some warning lights that are going on that desire and temptation is, is, is increasing in an area. And it's, it's like a warning light. It's like a danger light. Give that to God. Take those few moments to do that. Maybe you've crossed into sin. It hasn't resulted in death yet, but you've crossed into sin. And you're there. Get a hold of it now. Recognize that you're a sinner. Take responsibility for your sin and ask God to begin to do the work in your heart. Again, that's a process, not a journey, but it begins here. Or it can. Maybe you, man, you're so far that the death and the stench of that sin is reeking in your life and everybody in your life knows it. God did it for David. He'll do it for you. He can restore you. Because theologians and scholars come back and said some of the greatest things that David ever did, he did after this failure. That failure is not final that God is a God of second chances 
Again, I'm not here today beating you up. I'm here today telling you that God loves you and has a plan for your life, that there is grace, that there are second chances, that there are do-overs, there are mulligans that only come from God. But you and I, in order to receive those, if we found ourselves in sin, we have to recognize our sin. We have to take responsibility, and we have to let God begin the restorative work in our lives. So will you bow your heads and pray with me today? Father, I just thank you for your word. And I thank you, Lord, for the spirit of Jesus Christ. Lord, the, the, the power that raised Christ from the dead that dwells within us. And I just pray, God, that you will just in these next few moments as a band leads us in some courses, that you will just fill this place. And there may be people in this room that make their seats their altars. And they just turn around right there and they just pray and they give it to you. Maybe they need to move from where they are and come to the front uh, and, and find a place to pray. Maybe they're watching online and they just need to stop right there. And just as the music is playing right there in the privacy of their own home or their office or wherever they may be, that they just drop to their knees and they give it to you. Maybe they're in a coffee shop watching the streaming right now and they just need to make a radical move and just give it to you. God, I don't know, but here's what I do know. You're a God of second chances. You're a God that overcomes the shoulda, coulda, wouldas in life. You're the God that can restore us back to the service in which you've called us. Do this today in our lives, and we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.